You're listening to the Overtime Ireland American Football Podcast. Brought to you in association with OvertimeIreland.com. Now, here's the OTI guys. Hi guys, you're very welcome along to episode 72 of the Overtime Ireland American Football Podcast, brought to you in association with OvertimeIreland.com. I'm sure at this stage you just know my familiar voice, and that's me, DJ. As you all know, Colin's away on his holidays in San Diego, so I'm sure he's having better weather than we are having here over in Ireland. But I'm joined by a man who I always enjoy having on the show, and I'm sure he'd rather be coming on talking about the Patriots in a better light than we are going to today. But that's Mr. Russ Goldman. Thanks for having me back there, DJ. Russ, week one is now in the books and a very disappointing start to the season for the New England Patriots. Yeah, listen, it was a very disappointing game. Uh, to be honest with you, whenever you're up by 10 at the half and you lose, you know, obviously there are going to be questions exactly of what happened. And uh, honestly, this is, a, this is a game that the Miami, excuse me, the Miami Dolphins deserve to win. They, they really beat the Patriots in every way that you can uh, and uh, I guess you could say in the trenches, uh, offensive line, defensive line, they dominated in the second half, and they deserve to win this game. And uh, it's unfortunate as a Patriots fan to uh, to watch that in the second half, but the warning signals were actually there in the first half, but the Patriots were, were up by 10, so you're thinking, okay, everything's going to be okay. But, uh, but uh, honestly, I could see this coming, and uh, unfortunately – we get the result that we get, which was a loss for the Patriots. But it really was a game of two halves. Russ, the Patriots, yep. while weren't great in the first half, they had that 10-point lead, and you thought no matter how bad they played in the second half that they would have to continue and that they would have enough to get that win. But when you see the amount of times Tom Brady got sacked in that game, the result wasn't really a surprise. Well, you know, again, when you're up, 10 at the half, DJ, honestly, and, I, and I've and i said this to, to friends uh, today, you're up at the half like that, you should win the game. Uh, in years past, the Patriots would win, you know, if they're up at the half. So, again, that's that makes this even more disappointing. Uh, but, uh, but like I mentioned, the warning signals were, were there in the first half when I saw, you know, how the Patriots' defense looked. Even though they were getting off, off the field, it, it was more of a result of uh, mistakes by the Miami Dolphins and uh, and and Ryan Tannehill. It, it wasn't really real, uh, you know great play by the Patriots defense. It was more it, it had more to do with the Dolphins than it did the Patriots. So so you go to the second half. They have the second half kickoff. They take advantage of of their first opportunity, and then you know next thing you know. Um, Tom Brady coughs up the ball in a fumble, and uh, and the game basically changes from that point on. So it's you know again, it it really was a snowball effect. Uh, but uh, but listen, I'm going to be honest with you. All the credit in the world has to go to the Dolphins. Uh, the game was there for the Patriots, and and the Dolphins took it. And looking forward to towards the rest of the season, is the way the defense kind of disappeared in the second half something that? You're worried about it, or are you still confident that the Patriots will be able to bounce back from this and go deep well, into the playoffs? Well, listen, first of all, DJ, it's just one game. So let's, let's put this into perspective. It's one game. Um, I can go back, you know, again, I can go back to the last time the Patriots lost 
an opening game of the season. That was 2003. They lost uh, 31 to nothing to the Buffalo Bills on the road. And that year they won the Super Bowl. So, again, I'm trying to put this all into perspective for what's what's ahead with the Patriots. This is still a very good football team. And for me, defensively, what was disappointing, believe it or not, goes to the coaching staff. Because the Patriots, again, came out in a 3-4 defense, a read-and-react defense, which you know anyone that follows the Patriots knows it's a conservative style of defense. The problem being, now that they actually have talent that is, that is again, more of a 4-3 style defense and, and more of, I guess you could say, an aggressive style of defense. But for some reason, the Patriots decided in this game that they would go back, revert back to what they have done in years prior and go to this read-and-react defense, and it just didn't work. And uh, I guess you could say the one thing that really frustrated me was the running of the Miami Dolphins really just right down the throats of the Patriots' defense. And and uh, a friend of mine actually actually gave me a stat that actually shocked me, that no Sean Moreno had over 50 yards running after first contact, meaning that there was a Patriots player right there, and he, he was breaking tackles left and right. So that, to me, was the frustrating part of all of this, is that uh, the Patriots players were there, they were there to make the tackle and just could not make the tackle. Some of that, obviously, you have to give credit to Noshawn Moreno, but but uh, but honestly, you also have to fault the uh, Patriots' defense for not wrapping up the player and bringing him down. So so again, it's one game. I still I still see this defense as potentially, believe it or not, a top ten defense, and hopefully, hopefully, the coaching staff will learn from this and maybe not play as much read and react 3-4 defense in the upcoming games because they actually have talent to be a more aggressive style of defense, but that's not what they showed us uh, against the Dolphins. Yeah, and you mentioned no Sean Moreno there, and I think his performance, a lot of defenses will probably be paying a lot more attention to him than what the Patriots defense did, and everybody knew he was a good player, but I think a lot of people thought his best days might be behind him, but going on the performance against the Patriots, I think he still might have another few seasons in him. Oh, I totally agree with you. Listen, he's a good back. He ran for over 200 yards last year in a game I went to DJ when he played for the Broncos. So so I know he's a quality running back. Um, you know, and again, I could see him doing this against other teams. And But, but from a Patriots perspective still, you know, again, when you have a player in your grasp, like the player, like the Patriots did in this game, and you watch the way he's breaking tackles, it was just again very disappointing. Very disappointing to see how the Patriots wilted in the second half. And uh, and you know, again, I've heard people blame it on the heat, and and heat is a factor. But I'm sorry, this was a beat down by the by the Miami Dolphins, and they deserve to win this game. And the Patriots have to look themselves in the face and say, why did we lose this? You know, basically, we got beat up, and, and and the Dolphins took it to them, and they have to learn from this. Because, again, you know, this is a team that I truly believe can get to the Super Bowl and potentially win it. But they certainly did not show it to me against the Miami Dolphins. But, again, it's only week one. There was a number of surprises in week one, Russ. One that stood out for me was the Tennessee Titans getting a 16-point victory over the Kansas City Chiefs in Arrowhead Stadium. You know what? That one that one really surprised me too, DJ, because uh, nothing against the Tennessee Titans, but I really wasn't expecting much from them in this game. And there has been some talk 
that you know again I, I've heard some experts talk that the Chiefs might take a step back based on based on on their their offensive issues that they might have with uh with the lack of wide receivers that you know that they currently have that they really don't have as much talent and and, and the situation with Dwayne Bow but still to go into Arrowhead and get the victory is huge for the Tennessee Titans. Yeah, it really is a big result for the Titans and you're not the only one that, you know, didn't have the Titans written off in this game, but I thought if they were going to win it would have been by a much narrower margin. Another surprising result was the Atlanta Falcons getting a 37-34 victory over the New Orleans Saints. I've, I watched the Falcons throughout the Hard Knocks series and right. they didn't appear to be a team that I thought would be able to get a victory over the Saints. <laughs> What's funny about the Falcons, again, you you just go back a couple of years ago, they were, you know, again, they were a deep playoff team. Then last year, you know, I saw them and they looked like a shadow of the same team. But uh, but listen, I got to give them credit. I mean, you know, to, to beat the Saints and, and DJ, I've actually picked the Saints to get to the Super Bowl, so so that's a quality win for them, and and I, I guess you could say it's a mild surprise. But the one thing that that fans of the NFL you know know is that that these divisional games tend to be close, and uh, that's why it's not this huge surprise that Atlanta won. I know what you're saying based on how they looked in the preseason, but but when you play an opponent as often as Atlanta plays New Orleans, it really you know again it's not it shouldn't be you know this this crazy shock, but what you're saying, you know, again, because, because New Orleans is a, I, I guess you could say a cut above, but, um, but, you know, again, Atlanta still has the talent and they, you know, and they rose to the occasion and won at home. So, so kudos to them for getting that victory. Yeah. And two teams, I'm sure the Patriots were keeping an eye out for the results. The New York Jets got the win against Oakland Raiders and the Bills got a 23-20 victory over Chicago Bears. I have to tell you, it's so funny that, that you mentioned those two games because uh, after one week, the Patriots are, are the only team in the division not to win a game. And uh, it's funny because because a team that, that people scoff at all the time is the Buffalo Bills. And I truly believe in, in, in the Bills' head coach, uh, Doug Marone. I, I, think he, I think he's building a really nice program there. And the Bills are, Bills are going to be no pushover. I truly believe that. So them them um, winning that game against Chicago isn't a huge surprise to me personally. I know around the league it is, but um, but I believe that that Buffalo is trending in the right way. The Jets, you know, again the Jets beating Oakland. Okay, you know I I could see that regardless. Um, they should beat Oakland. Oh, you know, again it's funny the score is only nineteen to fourteen. I know I know the Jets pretty much control the game, but um, you know again. As a Patriots fan, to see all the teams in the division win and you lose, it's a, it's a bad first week to be a Patriots fan, DJ. Yeah, well, Russ, as I always say, I think it's days like this that the other teams in the AFC East might want to take a picture off the standings because I think it's going to be the only time they'll ever see the Patriots <laughs> at number four in the division. Uh, I tend to agree with you, and again, I'm not trying to come off as being, you know, uh, you know, uh, over-optimistic here, but, you know, again, realistically, the Patriots are going to be in the hunt, not just, you know, listen, I think they're going to win the division, and uh, I know this is one game, and uh, kudos to the Miami Dolphins, but um, if the Miami Dolphins are better than 8-8, eight and eight, I would be surprised. It, it, it's a it, it's a good team. It's an average team, um, but, you know, I, and I give them credit for getting the victory, uh, but, but I think the Patriots, 
still are going to win the division, but uh, only time will tell. And I know Callum, even though he's over in San Diego, he's probably still going to listen into the podcast, so I think it would be unfair of us to miss out on his Green Bay Packers losing their first game of the season <laughs> by 20 points to the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny because... Um, there's been a good amount of talk over here about that game and, and so much credit given to the Seattle Seahawks. And, and, and listen, you, you have to give them credit. Um, one criticism that I've heard, DJ, and this might be something that you might want to talk to your co-host about um, next time you guys do a show together, is, is, is to ask them why, uh, why, um, why their quarterback never threw at Richard Sherman. Not once. Did not throw at his side once. You know, again, you know, people think that Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback in the NFL, and he might be. But why didn't he even throw once to, um, you know, t- to his side? You know, again, that to me is a mistake. You know, and uh, not that that's the reason why the Green Bay Packers lost the game. The, you know, obviously the Seahawks were better, but but I, I I found that curious to find out that Aaron Rodgers did not throw at Richard Sherman's uh, side even once. I wonder, Ross, though, is that the decision of Aaron Rodgers not to take the risk of throwing in Richard Sherman's direction, or is it just that the coaches don't really have confidence in, enough confidence in the wide receivers over that side of the field? Possibly, possibly, but, but I'll give an example of how it worked. You know, again, I, listen, Aaron Rodgers is a much better quarterback than Ryan Tannehill. You know, again, you're talking apples and oranges. But Ryan Tannehill actually threw at Darrell Revis and completed several um, passes to Mike Wallace. So, again, I think you have to at least try to open up the rest of the field when you don't even target one receiver to you know to that cornerback i just i i think it's a mistake i hear what you're saying but i think you have to keep them honest and uh you know i don't know who made that decision not to throw that way but uh i think it was the wrong decision yeah we're gonna wrap up our week one review there and before i forget i want to give a big shout out to our friends over at last word on sports for all your sports information whether it's Football, hockey, baseball, MMA, rugby, Formula One, and so many more sports. I think, Ross, if there's a sport, even if somebody's invented in their own backyard, last word on sports, they're probably covering it. Wow. So a big shout-out to the guys over at Last Word on Sports. And now we're going to head into the OTI Red Zone with Ted Sunquist. He was a GM with the Denver Broncos and Column Interviewed him before he headed off to San Diego, so now we'll go into the OTI Red Zone. The OTI Red Zone, presented by OvertimeIreland.com. Joining me now in the podcast, Ted Sudquist, former general manager of the Denver Broncos. Uh, really delighted to have on a, a former GM on the on the podcast, something we haven't done before. Thanks for taking the time, Ted, to join us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, been something that I've wanted to do for quite some time to join you on Overtime Ireland, and I appreciate you having me. Yeah, we've been trying to get it in the pipeline for a while and finally come to fruition. So should be good. Hope all the listeners enjoy what we have to talk about. Part about being a general general manager of a franchise and all something that a lot of the fans over here in the UK don't get to get to hear too much into that inside of the things. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting position within uh, professional football. Most of the focus tends to go on the head coach. Uh, you know, whether it's Bill Belichick or Jim Harbaugh or John Harbaugh, John Fox out here in Denver now. And then the rest of the focus, obviously, is on the players and uh, the guys out on the field, Peyton Manning and 
Drew Brees down in New Orleans and, you know, Russell Wilson at quarterback out in Seattle. But behind the scenes is the guy who's kind of making it go, uh, the man behind the curtain, so to speak, and that's the general manager. And, you know, I had an opportunity to be the general manager of the Denver Broncos for six seasons between 2002 and 2008. Um fantastic time a lot of responsibility a lot of various things to worry about player personnel draft free agency contract signings handling the the cap uh you name it uh set on a number of committees which helped steer and guide uh various policies around the national football league and in general just uh, you know represented the club um uh, week in and week out and tried to put the best product that i could out there on the field um became a general manager as a result of a number of years in the college scouting department and i ran that uh, operation from more i think it was about 95 until about 2002 and that covered our back-to-back super bowl seasons in 97 and 98 and it was my responsibility to oversee the scouts that went across the country looking at the best in college football and then trying to put that all together and uh, come up with a good draft and, and continue a good young pipeline of talent into the Broncos organization. And, uh, and I thought we did a, a, a really good job at that uh, for a number of years. Uh, found you know running backs like um, uh, Terrell Davis, Mike Anderson, Alandis Gary, Clinton Portis. Uh, you know, uh, Denver was known for uh, their ability to run the football in that West Coast offense and I think one of the reasons that we were so successful in doing so was our ability to constantly have good, young, fresh legs in there at the running back position. And, uh, boy, I tip my hat to my scouts and uh, the job that they did over that time. So a lot of fun, and there's a lot to learn in, in, uh, uh, in the road to becoming a general manager in the NFL. Um, but, you know, I certainly think that if you pay attention to some of uh, your role models out in the game and, and, you know, really study hard and, and, um, you know, stick your mind with it, that the opportunity eventually comes. And I think there are some really good young general managers in the NFL today. Yeah, you went through some of the scenarios there, some of the players that used to go through the draft while your time was there, some fantastic running backs mentioned. You mentioned the two back-to-back Super Bowls and so on and so forth. We're going to elaborate a little bit more on that later on. But you mentioned being the general manager for six years. You actually spent 16 years in total with the organization. When you joined the organization as a, a scout, you know, in the player personnel department, was that was it always a, a goal of yours to make it to the GM level? You know, that's a great question, and i got to be honest with you, it really wasn't. When I first became a scout, um, I still thought that I might go back into coaching. I had coached at my alma mater here, the United States Air Force Academy, the Falcons in uh, Colorado Springs, and I had coached there for five years. I was also a player there, and and I thought my heart was was getting back into coaching. But then I had the opportunity, like you said, uh, when I first joined the Broncos in 92, to get into the scouting side of things. And I learned from two really good uh, teachers. One, uh, and I know the fans will recognize this name, Jack Elway. And that's uh, John Elway, the great quarterback for the Broncos, and now the general manager of the Denver Broncos. That was his father. And Jack had been in the game at the college level and the pro level for a number of years. And there was just a lot of great things to learn from Jack. And then another... uh, Another fellow by the name of Jerry Fry, and Jerry Fry had been in uh, both college football and the NFL for years and years. He had been the head coach at the University of Oregon, and the fans might recognize this name, Dan Fouts, yeah. the great San Diego Charger quarterback. He had, Jerry had coached Dan uh, in college. 
And so I, you know, I entered in, I was about 30 years old at the time and, uh, you know, not necessarily young coming into the NFL, but still young in my career, my football career. And these two gentlemen had been both coaches and scouts and they, they saw something, I guess, in my work and, and, you know, my abilities that, uh, lended itself towards personnel and, and not necessarily to coaching. And between the two of them convinced me that I might have a future in this. Um, and I really just kind of took it step by step, to be honest with you. And the, the success that we ended up having in Denver uh, over the years that I was college scouting director, and as you know, owners, when they change regime, regimes and they're looking for new coaches or new GMs, the first place they go, they're usually the most successful teams at the time. And I think that's why you see you know, a lot of GMs and coaches come out of Green Bay and New England and some of the really successful franchises uh, in the modern day right now. Um, but at that time, it was Denver. And the Chicago Bears in 2001 uh, had uh, let their general manager go, and they were looking uh, to do a, a massive search. And they did it kind of like an executive search, like a, like a corporate America or you know, a corporate world would right. do. And it was through that process that I got uh, um, kind of sifted out and um, got down to the final couple candidates for the Chicago Bears GM job. Ended up not making it. It went to Jerry Angelo. And then the next season, um, i got to be honest with you, that was when I realized, hey, if I want to be a general manager, then I need to start really buckling down thinking about what I would do. Uh, I thought I had a great interview with the Bears, but I really focused and the next season, Atlanta and Arthur Blank came looking for a GM, asked Mr. Bowen if they could interview me, and he said, you know what, I think I'm going to hold on to my guy, and that's when uh, Pat uh, uh, promoted me to general manager of the Broncos in 2002. And so, yeah, by then, I think I had, I had thought that, hey, given the opportunity, I think I can do the job. Uh, but at the time, it was kind of just, you know, Season after season, what can you do to continue to help the Broncos win and, and put themselves in a good position? And a lot of that kind of revolved around the scouting side of the business. And and I thought, hey, if the general manager ever, ever comes, it will. And eventually it did. And uh, so the Atlantic Falcons kind of maybe forced the Broncos' hand a little bit there to put the end of that position. But then when you were in that position, a lot of people will see what general managers do when it's in the news, you know, when it's on NFL.com or whatever. But a lot of people don't know what goes into the effort of it behind the scenes. What kind of goes into the, the role of a general manager? Is it more on the player side or is it, you know, looking into every last detail? I've seen certain general managers and they kind of just stick to the player side. Other people say that they have to look at everything, including the, the surface on the field and everything else, down to the cleats and everything of players to make sure everything in the organization is up to standard. What way did you take your approach to it? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And my approach was all-inclusive, just like you said. I was responsible, first and foremost, for player personnel, both pro and college scouting, making sure that you know our scouts were on top of the best players that were out there and, and the ability to go out, evaluate those guys, see if they fit in what we were trying to do offensively and defensively, and then certainly oversee the financial aspect of the club, and negotiating the contracts, making it fit into the the overall cap space and building the strongest team. But um, I took a great interest in the, the ancillary um, aspects of football as well. The trainers, the video, um, the field guys, the, the turf guys, like you said, uh, the equipment, 
I was involved in all those aspects because I thought those guys that ran those various departments needed my support. They needed my help. There were times when there were decisions that had to be made that were really important to what they were trying to do for the football team. And without a sounding board or someone to talk to or someone to really support what they were trying to do, uh, they couldn't get it done. And those little things the fans need to realize obviously affect a football team. And and sometimes you don't see it, but there can be ripple effects. But if you don't take care of the turf or you don't have some of the best video equipment and technology that you can't keep up with your opponents. And so I really got interested into that and really delved into trying to not micromanage and do their job, but to help them do their job as well as I could. Yeah, just a general overview. It's interesting that you mentioned the surface. You know, things like you have a player on a huge contract, the surface of the field, if there's a divot in it or that isn't replaced, you know, could go over in his ankle, high ankle sprain or whatever, miss the majority of the season. So it is a very, very valuable part that some of the fans mightn't take into account. Exactly, especially if you're going with a natural surface. And a lot of teams, is you, you know, um, I'm not sure how it is over your way with regards to, you know, soccer and football. Mostly grass mostly grass okay so you understand the importance of the natural surface whereas over here at the high school college level and even now into the professional ranks you're seeing a lot of synthetic surfaces come back um you know the the field turf surfaces with the ground up rubber but in denver it's very important to mr bowen and the, the organization to stay natural grass and therefore you really had to stay on top of the various uh problems that can pop up with regards to maintaining a, uh, a perfectly manicured field and uh, you know it's, I, I imagine it's a lot like trying to stay on top of a golf course and any little thing can can get in there and really cause havoc yeah. and if these if the turf manager doesn't have the support that he needs and the equipment that he needs pretty soon what you're doing is instead of trying to fix a problem you're tearing it all out and just re your entire field and you don't want to do that. That that it doesn't present a, a stable, standardized surface for your players, and it gets expensive over the long haul. When you were a GM, you were kind of known by many people to be one of the more active in player acquisition, whether it be through trades or through the draft and so on. One of them was that you traded Clinton Portis while he was the star running back of the team at the time to the Redskins in exchange for Champ Bailey. And you know, we all know Champ went on to become one of the best cornerbacks in the history of the NFL. You also traded up with the St. Louis Rams up from number 29 to the number 11 overall pick to Dick Jay Cutler that was on draft day. In particular, like we know kind of some of the stuff that goes on with trades. Obviously, the player want, might want to move or the team might want to move the player on. But just in particular, the one on draft day to get Jay Cutler, how, how tough was it to make that decision? Or was that something that the Rams were also very interested in doing? Well, another good question. And remember, we came off of the playoff season in 2005. We lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers in the AFC Championship. And so we started down around 29 or 30. And there was a trade early before the draft even started. There was a trade between the Jets and the Falcons that involved John Abraham. And we got into a three-way trade, which in the NFL is is relatively rare. You don't usually get three teams working to, to change uh, spots within the draft order in exchange for a player and other you know, draft choices. But we were able to move from about 29 or 30 up to number 15. And sitting at number 15, we hadn't drafted that high in a number of years, and there were three good quarterbacks, as you recall, coming out of that draft. Yeah. Vince Young out of Texas, Matt Leinart out of uh, Southern Cal, and then Jay Cutler in, at Vanderbilt. 
Um, our new offensive coordinator at the time, Mike Heimerdinger, had been coaching it at, uh, out in Tennessee at, at, with the Titans. And so he was very familiar with Jay Cutler because of the proximity of Vanderbilt to, uh, to Nashville there. And he really kind of fell in love with Jay's play. Uh, we as an organization said, hey, you know, Jake Plummer has been a great quarterback for us. He took us to the AFC Championship, but he's in his ninth or his tenth year. It might be smart to start trying to find a replacement. And, and we never as an organization had been in an opportunity like that to where we were in striking distance of perhaps moving up into the top ten to grab one of those three quarterbacks. So we studied those three guys really hard. We knew that Vince Young would probably go – high because the Titans had talked a lot about, you know, wanting a quarterback and uh, the ties with the University of Texas there through former owner Bud Adams. And it kind of came down to Matt Leinert and Jay Cutler. And so as an organization, prior to draft day, after having done all our evaluations, we made a commitment that, hey, if, if these quarterbacks start falling down, let's make a stab. Let's, let's, let's try to see if we can jump up there and grab one of these guys. And sure enough, um, the draft didn't go as a lot of the, the pundits and the prognosticators thought, and down came Matt Leinert and down came Jay Cutler. And so about at pick number eight, we started calling and asking, hey, if your guy's not there, would you be interested in trading? And, and eight, we didn't get eight, and then we didn't get nine. At number 10, Arizona picked Matt Leinert. And we're like, okay, well, Cutler's now out of the top ten we'll keep trying, and if he gets pushed down to 15, well, then we'll just take him. But let's keep trying to see if we can move up and get our guy. And that was where we got the Rams to uh, to go ahead and take. I believe we ended up trading a second rounder or something like that uh, to move uh, four spots from 15 to 11 and, and to get our quarterback of the future. You know, And, and unfortunately, uh, at least from a Broncos perspective, you know, Jay – uh, just didn't fit with what Josh McDaniels was trying to do, and he eventually got traded to Chicago. But I thought it was one of the better, the better picks and the better working of the draft and, and it taking advantage of situations, moving up from 29 or 30 to 15 to 11 to get that franchise guy coming off of a, a 13 and three season, you know. Yeah, and by the looks of things too, you also picked the better quarterback out of the tree, had the longer <laughs> career out of the tree of them. So yeah, the other two are out of the league now. <laughs> yeah, so on that there situation was a good call too. Just two more questions before we finish up. Champ Bailey, I mentioned earlier, was recently cut by the Saints. Getting the final roster down to the 53 man, you know, number always seems to be a tough call. But how challenging is that for a general manager? It's really challenging because those last cuts are usually dealing with players just like you talked about in Champ Bailey. I mean, you know, guys who have had long careers, very productive careers. In the case of Champ Bailey, probably a first uh, ballot Hall of Famer. And, you know, he, he, he's, he's, at, he's at the end of his career, and sometimes it's really hard for players to accept that. And you'd like to see him walk off the field like John Elway did, a Super Bowl champion, and, and, and that would be it. And i and I got to be honest, I think Champ probably would have called it a career had the Broncos been able to defeat the Seahawks in Super Bowl Forty Eight, But they weren't. And the Broncos had seen the play of Champ slip, and they'd had some young guys come up, play well at cornerback position. Chris Harris, I'll mention, uh, is one of them. But, um, and I think Champ just thought, you know, I've accomplished everything in football, but win a Super Bowl. I'm going to put myself in this in the best opportunity that I can, and that ended up being New Orleans. And letting a player like that go, and then going and seeing him play in another uniform when really you'd like to see him 
call it a career in your uniform in orange and blue instead of black and gold that's that's really really hard and and yet you know so, so you know sometimes it's just up to the player if he feels like he still has has it in him they'll move on but but cutting those veteran players, and normally that's when it happens at the 53, from 75 down to 53, because you hold on to them as long as you possibly can. Uh, that's got to be one of the hardest things you do as a general manager. One of the other things that's possibly hard is contract negotiations, and J.J. Watt recently signed a huge contract with the Houston Texans. You've negotiated with some of the top names. You mentioned Champ Bailey, you've negotiated with him. Is contract negotiations one of the tougher roles, or does it just vary from... Uh, contract to contract and client to client. You know that that's another great question. To be honest with you, uh, it, 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 a lot of it depends upon the agent that you're dealing with, and and I'd say nine times out of ten, most of the agents that I dealt with, we both wanted the same thing. We wanted the player, and they wanted to get the player on your team. And and certainly in Denver, it's a popular franchise for players. It's always been you know known as a, an organization that take, takes care of its players. And so most of the time, players want to come here. They want to get a deal done, and, that, and that's half the battle. If you know that the agent certainly wants to get his player there, then you can both work towards putting together an agreement that makes long-term sense for the player and gets him the kind of money that he feels like he deserves, and then in the, in, on the other side of the coin, makes long-term sense for the club and doesn't cash strap you or put you in a bad cap situation a couple of years down the road to where you're, you know, suddenly asking to either renegotiate or ask the player to take a cut. So I enjoyed negotiating on behalf of the Broncos because we were known as one of the teams again that that did fair deals and that took care of their players and so most people wanted to come to our place versus chasing talent and trying to convince them not only to take the deal, but sometimes having to overpay for that deal so that they'll come play for an organization that may have not had as much success in the past as some other teams have. You know, I mean, uh, Arizona, Buffalo, some of these teams, I mean, it, you're in a tough spot when you're trying to convince these guys, we'd like you to come to our place. Yeah. Um, and the player's going, well, you know, yeah, I, I, I see money as money, but at the same time, you know, I want to win as well, and what are you doing to to ensure that I can win? I never had to deal with that in Denver, and that was a that was a great part of it. And to be honest with you, part of the part of the role of the general manager is to create and cultivate those relationships with the player agents, and I always tried to do that. I always tried to be, you know, as cordial and fair minded, and and to negotiate in a in a positive manner versus screaming and hollering at them and throwing the phone down, <laughs> you know, and, and just being antagonistic. And, and I think the agents, over the long run of, uh, you know, the, certainly the six years as general manager, but 16 years in dealing with agents, uh, I think they appreciated that. Finally, before we finish up, Ted, you can be found on Twitter at Ted underscore Sudquist. And your website, Ted, we haven't mentioned it yet, thefootballeducator.com. Do you want to fill the listeners in a little bit about that so they can go and check that out? Yeah, you know, the footballeducator.com, I started that about three years ago with the intent of doing what we did today on Overtime Ireland, and that is kind of explain to the fans my perspective of professional football, college football, and the game itself from my 16 years with the Broncos, but from a different angle, not necessarily from a player's angle or from a coach's angle, but from that scouting angle and that evaluation process and, and the front office executives and 
And so hopefully when the fans go online and they read the footballeducator.com, they'll kind of see football from a different perspective. Um, I've also tried to reach out to a number of fans and give them a platform to write as well. If there's, if there's guys and gals out there that love the game and understand the game and, and you know, maybe want to write about it from a coaching perspective or a scouting perspective, I'm, I'm posting a, a, an article today from a, fan, a female fan here in the United States that kind of looks at the game from a female's perspective. Um, then, you know, it's been a great opportunity to get other voices on there as well. So, I mean, I, I, I've got some great following over there in the U.K. and in Ireland, and uh, if there's anybody listening out there, please jump on, read the stuff, shoot me some questions. Uh, like you mentioned, I am on Twitter, and I try to answer as many Twitter questions and interact with the fans as I can. It's been a lot of fun. You know, I miss the game, and I miss being involved on a day-to-day basis, but this is another opportunity to to really get out there and, and to talk with the people that, that love the game of football. Yeah, you mentioned there you like to interact. That was something else I wanted to mention. You also, you're very good. If anyone asks, wants to ask a question about being a GM or being around the game, give him a tweet at Ted underscore Sunquest. He's always looking to you know give you his perspective on the game. You mentioned uh, you wanted to set up the site to do kind of what you've done today, and I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed having you on to talk, Ted. Hopefully we'll do it again in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on to, to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me, and yeah, let's let's follow up. Maybe we'll we'll uh, hook up again around the midway point of the season and see where all the teams are following it after about eight games or so. That'll be excellent. Yeah, another great interview column done there with Ted Sunquest, and hopefully you all enjoyed that part of the show. And now we're going to go into the OTI news. NFL news. And I think there's nowhere else we can start in the. OTI news this week, but with the news that Ray Rice has been cut by the Baltimore Ravens and suspended indefinitely by the NFL. This came after the news broke that a video had emerged on Monday of Ray Rice throwing a punch at his then-fiancé. I think it's no surprise that the Baltimore Ravens have now cut Ray Rice, and I think everybody will agree with that decision. Uh, bad news for the Houston Texans, and that's Jadavion Clowney has torn his meniscus and is expected to miss four to six weeks. And he was impressive in what I've seen of him in preseason, so that's a big blow for the Texans for the next number of weeks, anyway. Absolutely, you know. Again, um, Jadavion Clowney, number one draft pick. I mean, I mean that's going to be that's going to be tough. But but the interesting part about about the. Uh, Texans is they have you know again I think they have a very good defense defense even without him so they will be able to recover you know again handle the situation without him but when he comes back you know that that defense is going to be immense uh, the Houston Texans uh, are not a team to sleep on this year yeah I think the Texans you know the, the only way is up really from their performances last year but I think you know with Jadavion Clowney and JJ Watt. I think they are going to be a team that a lot of people will have to take a lot more serious this season. No, listen, I completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, again, the offense will will take time to uh, to really get going under Bill O'Brien. But, but again, you still have Arian Foster. And, uh, you know, they weren't as bad as their record showed last year. And uh, I just think, you know, again, I could, you know, it might not be this year, DJ, but in a couple of years, the Houston Texans will be a team to deal with once again. Yeah, and we're just going to have a quick look towards week two now that week one is in the books. The Miami Dolphins travel to Buffalo to play the Bills, an important game in the Patriots division. 
Yeah, listen, it's a, it's a divisional game. It's going to be, a, you know, again, it's going to be a tough game, believe it or not, for the Dolphins. Like I said, I, I actually believe in the Bills. So so I would be shocked to see the Bills not win that game, honestly, at home. Uh, but but it's a tough divisional game. And, uh, you know, everyone talks about the AFCs being easy. But but I'm tell, I'm here to tell you that, that all these divisional games are tough. Yeah, and the Patriots this week, or going into week two, will be travelling to Minnesota to take on the Vikings. Could be another tough game for the Patriots, but I still expect them just about to get a win in this game. You know what? Uh, I, st- I still expect them to win too, DJ, but uh, it- it'll be inter- interesting because, again, you're going up against Adrian Peterson, and after what No Sean Moreno just did, you know, I- I'm a little concerned, but... I think that many of their issues stopping the run are correctable, and hopefully they will be able to correct them against the Minnesota Vikings. And they're actually going to be going going up against their former quarterback, Matt Castle. So it should be it should be an interesting game. I think one thing about facing the Vikings is you know exactly what they have. They have Adrian Peterson, and I don't know whether the whole no Sean Moreno whether that was a surprise to some of the players on the Patriots defense this night, but I think. Going up against AP, they kind of know what to expect, so I'd be slightly optimistic that they'll have rectified some of the issues by next Sunday. You know what? Um, I'm, pre- you know, I, again, I think Adrian Peterson might get his yards, but but the way that Belichick usually works is that he, he's going to try to take away the one thing you do best, and that's running the ball, and and he'll probably try to do that and make Matt Castle beat you. And uh, if that's the case, then I feel pretty good going into the game. So I'm pretty sure that they'll be loading up to stop Adrian Peterson, and uh, hopefully, like I said, hopefully they'll they'll come back to Foxborough one and one. One of the games that could be, well, there's two games that when I look at the fixture list that really stand out this week: Seattle Seahawks traveling to San Diego, and that's one of the that's the game that Collins actually going to over in the state. So I think he's in for a very exciting game there. I totally agree, DJ, and and it's funny because because many people over here are talking about the Chargers as being being a little bit of a sleeper team, and uh, you know what? I I respect their quarterback. Their quarterback has played very well against the Patriots. Always always gives the Patriots fits, and uh, and winning in San Diego is not an easy thing. Now you know again, Seattle Seattle looked great in Week One, but this is different. This is going on the road to San Diego, which isn't an easy place to win. So uh, I expect this to be a close game. And the Chiefs travel to the Broncos. The Chiefs will be looking to bounce back after their loss in Week One, but very tough travel to Denver. Absolutely, especially after that that first game. And uh, you know, Denver, Denver's in, you know again they they got to be flying high after their victory last night. So uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are are in a tough situation because again now they're playing the Broncos and. And the Patriots are actually going there in a couple of weeks for Monday Night Football, so uh, they're probably going to really, uh, re- really want to beat the Broncos on the road. But it, it, it's a tough ask, and I've been to Denver, and I have to tell you, I think you know everyone talks about Seattle being being the loudest stadium in the NFL. I'm here to tell you they're wrong. It's act it's actually Denver. Denver Denver's louder. Denver Denver the the sound reverberates around the entire stadium. That place is incredibly loud. It actually sounds like a thunderstorm the entire game. It, it, it's a crazy place to see a game. It's a wonderful place to see the game. So it's and it's also a difficult place to win. So I I, I put my money on the Denver Broncos. And I'm sure Colum 
will be delighted, I'm sure he'll listen in to the podcast when he's over in the States, but he'll be delighted to hear me saying that my OTI lock of the week is going to be his Green Bay Packers hosting the New York Jets this week. <laughs> well, you know what? It, it, it's funny. I, I do expect them to bounce back pretty strongly. And uh, listen, Green Bay has a good team. Green Bay, I still think, DJ, are, are, in the, are definitely in the mix to possibly go to the Super Bowl. Uh there are a handful of teams. Again, we could talk about Seattle. We could talk about San Francisco. And, I, and I've and i already mentioned New Orleans. But I think Green Bay is right there as well. It's just one game. It was a it was a bad loss to Seattle. Tell your co-host, nothing to worry here. His team will win that game. Uh, well, I'm hoping I'm hoping his team win that game too, just to get, get a loss for the Jets. And I'm sure Jets fans will probably be getting on to me at... Overtime Ireland on Twitter. I'm sure they'll be letting me know their feelings about. I've I've never really been too complimentary towards you know Smith. Now he he was decent this week. I'll give him credit. Yeah, well, well, listen, it, it it's funny because this might sound strange coming from someone that lives in New England, but I actually respect the Jets fans, and I'll tell you why. The Jets fans remind me of what it's like to be a Boston Red Sox fan before the Red Sox won the World Series, and. Uh, it's a difficult existence being a Jets fan, and I know it being a Red Sox fan growing up. So, so uh, these are really good fans, believe it or not. And uh, and even though they're in the division, even though I don't like the Jets, I do respect the Jets fan base. Yeah, and it's a, they always are good people for having banter with between games, and you know, it it is the same. It's. I don't. It's nothing against the Jets fans. I just don't like the New York Jets. But I'm sure we'll have plenty of discussions about that throughout the season. And Russ, over the weekend, we ran a competition in association with Football America UK, one of the leading providers of fo- American football equipment over in the UK. So a big shout out to them and thanks to them for giving us a foot an NFL football giveaway. And the winner of that competition is. Adrian Collins, his Twitter is Adrian C Tweets. And so I'm presuming that's just Adrian Collins tweets. So congratulations to Adrian and thanks to everyone that retweeted the competition and followed us over the weekend. We'll be having plenty of more prizes throughout the season and hopefully you've enjoyed episode seventy two of the Overtime Ireland American Football Podcast and thanks yet again to Russ Goldman for coming on to the show and Russ, I know you're you have your own podcast for soccer in particular with being a Fulham fan. So do you want to give that out so that any of the fans listening in that just happen to be Fulham fans might give you a listen? <laughs> so if you go to blogtalkradio.com and uh, and if you search for Cottage Talk, you will find it. And uh, something that I really enjoy doing. It's been a tough existence being a, being a Fulham supporter now in the championship. But, uh, but we have a really good fan base, and uh, I love doing the show. And uh, please do check it out. I also have a, a blog talk radio show about the Patriots called Patriots 4th and 2 that, that, that you can also listen to if you're a Patriots fan. Yeah, so be sure to check out both of Ross's podcasts. And Ross, as you mentioned, you're a Fulham fan, I'm sure. That also helps you to understand how difficult it is to be a New York Jets fan. It certainly does, DJ. It certainly does. But uh, thanks yet again for coming on to the show, Russ, and from me, DJ. Hopefully you've all enjoyed listening, and Colin will be back in two weeks' time, but I have another few guests lined up for next week's show, so hopefully you all have a good week. DJ, and I will uh, I'll tweet it out. No problem. Thanks for that, Russ. Not a problem, DJ. Have a good night, my friend. Thanks. Same to you.
Okay. Take care.